The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us... He can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as the king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. In John chapter 15, verses 19 through 20, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus' disciples heard these words and they experienced this reality firsthand. Many of them were rejected. They were exiled. They were killed because of their devotion to Jesus. And, and church history, Christian history, is full of examples of martyrs and those who are persecuted for their faith in Christ. Two that I want to draw your attention to this morning come from the time of the English Reformation. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. These men were English reformers. And because of their faithfulness to the, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were arrested. And they were sentenced to death under Queen Mary. And I want to call them out because it was on this day, October 16th, 1555, after spending 18 months in a, in a cell, they were sentenced to death. And they actually met for the first time when they were dying at the stake. These two men talked. They prayed together before they were going to be burned alive. And Ridley <clears throat> was the first to strengthen his friend. And he said, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And as the flames began to grow, Latimer looked at Ridley and raised his voice to him so that he could hear him. And he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. This example is just an example of of people, of Christians, who are more devoted to King Jesus, to the kingdom of Christ, than in the earthly kingdom, any earthly king on the planet. 
And again, Christian history is full of examples just like this. But when you hear these kinds of stories, like what goes through your mind? How do you think you would respond? Have you ever questioned your resolve to cling to Jesus in the face of death? Like in our context, it's not generally so severe, so let's take it down a notch. Do you wonder how you can stay devoted to Jesus when you face pushback at work? Do you think you can keep your Christian convictions in a world where those convictions are increasingly seen as small-minded, as bigoted, as unfair? Really, the central question I want to ask today is what hope do we have to remain faithful to Jesus in the face of, of persecution, temptation, and suffering? What hope do we have? These are not theoretical questions for us. Like I read from Jesus before, God's people face persecution. It's a fact. It's going to happen. And the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is just another example of that happening. Now, this is obviously a very familiar story. I could invite anybody up here with a flannel graph, and you could make it all happen for us right now, right? But don't let that familiarity, like, help you tune things out. I want us to draw in and see what's going on in this story. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bible to Daniel 3, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us today. So Daniel 3 picks up right after Daniel 2, where Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of a certain dream. And you'll recall in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet made up of mixture of iron and clay. And in the dream, a stone broke off from the statue and crashed into it and smashed it into a bunch of different pieces. And then that stone became a great mountain and it filled the entire earth. And in the dream's interpretation, Daniel told him that the head of gold was none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself. And the point was, is that while he was currently like a king of kings on the earth, that one day his kingdom would eventually fall. And it would give way to an everlasting and worldwide kingdom. And this, this dream was really an offer of, of wisdom to Nebuchadnezzar. It was an offer of grace to him. He was offered a chance to see his kingdom for what it was and then bow in submission to God and to the greater kingdom that was to come. But we see very quickly when we get to Jan- Daniel chapter 3 that this, this great king, this magnificent ruler, this big old dummy completely missed the point. So when we get to Daniel 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar respond to the revelation from God by building his own statue. Right? Except this time, the entire thing is made of gold. So it's like he's shaking his fist in the face of God who said that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was only partial and that it would come to an end. So to prove God and everyone else wrong, he made this huge statue, this monster of a statue. It was 60 cubits tall. A cubit is 18 inches in our measurements. That's 90 feet. This room, like if you look at this highest point, it's about 30 feet. So this statue would have been about three of these rooms put together tall. Or if you think of Fuquay's newest skyscraper across from the mill, it's like 50 feet. It's like almost two of those. It was really big, right? And it was made to be seen from a long ways away. And they said it was terrifying. And it was also set in the exact same place as the Tower of Babel, 
where centuries before mankind built this tower in rebellion against the rule and against the reign of God. So Neb tried to do the same thing after his own likeness with no more success than they had before. It's like the makers of Sharknado. After making an objectively horrible movie, they respond by making five more, even more horrible movies. It didn't work, right? So Nebuchadnezzar makes this happen. He pulls out all the stops. He invites all of his peeps. He invites the satraps. Any satraps in the room? No? Okay. Satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all these rulers, all these authorities to come take part in this spectacle. And and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been part of this. And then told people from all these nations and languages they're going to fall down and worship when they hear the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music. I asked in the first service if there were any zitherists in the room, and we had somebody in the room. Jeff Erb has a zither and plays it, so I'm looking forward to hearing him next Sunday was a zither solo. So he was gathering people together, and he was, again, gathering people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That should sound familiar to you. He was exerting himself as the king of kings. He was gathering people to fall down before him in all his glory. What was this? This was an attempt to just overthrow the rule of God. He was exerting his military might, his political dominance, his cultural power to force everybody to fall in line or pay the price. Like those who didn't will be thrown into the fiery furnace. So the rules of the game were you were either going to bow the knee to this statue or you were going to get baked like a batch of cookies. There was no middle ground. And we know the rest of the story. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to play along, they were brought before the king. And after he asked them what they're going to do, they said that no matter what, they're going to remain faithful to God. And this is the point of the story where things really heat up. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar turns up the heat seven times. So hot that his own soldiers, his very best soldiers died when they were putting him into the furnace. And, but when he looked up, he was shocked to see that that Three men weren't working right. It was four men. They were walking around. And the fourth was like the son of the gods walking with him. And so he, he calls out their names and they come out like Lazarus coming out of the tomb. These men walk out of this place of death without a scratch. And Nebuchadnezzar then pra- he praised the Lord. He, he issued a new decree you know, saying that if anybody said anything offensive about their God, that those people would be torn limb from limb and their house made a garbage dump. Now, this probably was not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going for, but I think Nebuchadnezzar was starting to try a little bit. But, but finally, at the end, we see like from the, this pit of death to, to new life again, that they re, were rewarded with this place of honor and rule in the province of Babylon. So with all this in mind, this very familiar story, I want to look back And I want to ask that question that I began with. What hope do we have to remain faithful to Jesus in the face of persecution, temptation, and suffering? The simple answer is that on our own, we have no hope, no chance. We cannot do it. Without God, we would crumble faster than Superman wearing a kryptonite Snuggie. It would not take long. And the thing is, is it's okay. Because these men did not rely on their own faithfulness. They relied on the faithfulness of God. It's like Daniel 
didn't rely on his own power, his own wisdom, but on the power and wisdom of God. So in short, there are two big realities that we see in this passage that these brothers experience. And these realities are still true for us today. And these two truths stand as a major contrast between King Jesus, our king, and King Nebuchadnezzar and how they exercise their authority. So as we continue to see this clash of kingdoms, we see that unlike any earthly king, any earthly kingdom, our king preserves his people and our king is present with his people. He preserves his people. He's present with his people. First, God preserves his people. God's preservation of these men began sooner than when they arrived at the furnace. We can see that he preserved them and he preserves us through temptation. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before this structure and they said it was terrifying. At the same time, it probably was a pretty cool thing to look at. I mean, it was really big. It was made of gold. Add on to that, like the music that was happening, the fact that like who's who of their society was there. Everybody there was bowing down. Not to mention the fact that if you didn't bow down, you would die. There would have been immense temptation to bow down. That was a big thing for them. And I think it's helpful to see that Babylon has not changed its tactics. Right? Babylon is not just a back then kingdom. Bible uses Babylon as, as a theme, as an example for all of humanity rebelling against God. In our day, Babylon offers us dazzling and, and beautiful idols to worship. Now, most of us don't have a pagan statue in our house that we bow down to. But the temptation to, to lend our ears and our eyes and our hearts to the world is there and it's real. Maybe your days are spent just scrolling social media where you just compare yourself to everybody else. You think about how you wish you were like this person or you're really glad that you're a lot better than that person. Maybe you're doing it right now during the sermon. You should stop if you are. Maybe your mind just defaults to thinking about your plummeting 401k and inflation and worrying about your financial future. Maybe something more serious. Maybe, maybe pornography has been secretly gripping your heart for years. You see no way of escape. Maybe, maybe you give God his little part of your money, but you're more than generous when it comes to buying toys and tools and stuff for yourself. Right? The list could go on, but the point is that Babylon still offers us all sorts of idols to serve with our time, our attention, our money, our hearts. So sometimes Babylon draws us in with the promise of certain things, with the promise of power, of lust, of riches, of leisure, of rest. But other times Babylon draws us in with the threat of certain things, the threat of pressure, of pain, of isolation, of embarrassment, or even death in this instance. Like imagine the the cultural and social pressure they would have faced to bow down to that statue. All of their colleagues were there, and they were doing it. All their superiors were bowing down. They themselves were strangers in this foreign land who, like everybody else, wanted to fit in, like wanted to be liked and loved. And also like our society, Babylonian society, they worshiped a lot of gods. It wasn't just one. They worshiped many gods. But Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be number one when he wanted it. And again, our day is not much different. For the most part, you can believe whatever you want to believe in private, but you still need to bow the knee to certain cultural idols when you're called to. 
right? You can be whatever and be a Christian, but you have to get the order right. Your devotion to God always has to come underneath some other more important beliefs for the good of society. Like, put yourself in the situation for a moment. Imagine that your boss calls you into a team meeting, a big team meeting where the company announces a new inclusion initiative. And in this new initiative, every week, an employee in each department has to share why full inclusion of LGBTQ lifestyles and causes is important to you and how that's made a difference in your life. And you share with your boss that you're not all that comfortable with this because while you love and respect all all kinds of people, everybody, that your values and the company's values on this issue don't align and you don't think you're in really in a good spot to do that. And he tells you, well, you can believe what you want to on your time, but on company time, we need you to believe in company values. And we need you to walk the line or your job is in jeopardy. Like, what would you do? Like, that's the thing. And before you answer that, also consider this. Consider how when their accusers brought these charges against them, against these young men, these, these guys, they weren't being punks about it, right? It wasn't as if they, this was some political move or play they were making. They weren't trying to exert themselves above anybody. It was, it was their unique, it was their total devotion to God that stood out most to their enemies. So the question for us is the same true for us. Right? When we're accused of disobedience, when we're accused of not falling in line, is it because of our love for Jesus? Is it because of our, of our love and devotion to the ways of Jesus, to the word of Jesus? Or is it our own freedom? Is it our own personal rights? Is it our own comfort? Is it our grasp for power or some otherworldly agenda? Right? Christians are often accused of holding to certain views because of a political agenda. And is that ever the case? Oftentimes it is. Is that ever the case with you? This passage shows us that it's our devotion to our ultimate king that that should drive us, that should motivate us in all of our actions, especially those actions where we stand up against oppressive and sinful authorities that would have us disobey the Lord. It's also important to note that when these brothers stood up against temptation, they didn't do it alone. They had one another. They were there for Daniel in chapters 1 and 2, and now they're looking out for each other. It would have been really easy for one of them on their own to, to give in the temptation, for them to compromise. They could have justified it as a way to reach their culture. They could have said that it would have given them greater opportunities to tell other people about God if, if they weren't dead after all. They could have just acted like they were tying their shoes when the music started and said it in my heart. I wasn't really doing that. I was just, I was just tying my sandal, right? Either way, God preserved them and their temptation, but he did so in major part because of the community they had with each other. And we look around the room like we too have a Christian community that helps us fight temptation, right? We lean into one another as we fight the sinful flesh within us knowing that sin never dies in the dark, but it has to be brought out into the light of gospel community with other believers. And even so, we can support one another through the temptation to bow down to external, to cultural idols, whether it's at work, whether it's in a school, in community, wherever. 
Last week, Matthew Marshall from Scotland shared with us just how secular his land has become. And we're probably not that much farther behind. So the time is like now to lean into the power of God and the community of the people of God in the midst of temptation. So God is preserving them through temptation. But he also preserved them. He preserves us through persecution. He preserved them through the persecution that was to follow. After they successfully endured the temptation to to bow the knee to this idol, they were brought before the king. And in in his fury, in his rage, he demanded that they fall down. And he gave them one last chance to do it. And here's what they said. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of a blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But if even he does not rescue us, we want you to know as king, to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you set up. They had confidence. They knew that God was able to rescue them. Now, it seems less sure in the text whether or not they knew that he would save them or not. But either way, I think it speaks to the faith they had. They were not going to give in, right? And even when they were speaking to the king about this issue, they were still speaking respectfully. They're speaking honestly, but they're speaking respectfully. They're not yelling in his face in condemnation. They're not demanding their way. They're not trying to stir up a riot or revolt amongst everybody else. They're calm. They're collected, but they are confident in God. They're speaking the truth in love. And we got to do the same thing. Like when we face first persecution, whether it's big, whether it's small, God calls on us to be a witness for Jesus in the spirit of Jesus, in the ways of Jesus. This is a model of faith for us that we should follow. And their, their faith wasn't in a certain outcome. Their faith was in God. Like Jesus who cried out, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. They, they humbly resigned themselves to God's hand, to God's power, to God's will. And like these men, our faith It's not in an outcome. It's in God. So when you stand for Christ at your work or even in your family to confrontation, you don't bank your hope in an outcome. You don't bank your hope in some kind of present vindication or answer, but bank your hope in God, knowing that whatever happens, he is willing and able to help. So Nebuchadnezzar responded to this show of faith with even greater fury This is when he demands that the furnace be turned up seven times hotter. And even after this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remain faithful. They were bound in all sorts of clothes so that they would burn up even quicker. And it was so hot that the soldiers who carried them died. And we see a little glimpse of just even more about this, the the evil of this culture. That Nebuchadnezzar sacrificed two of his mighty men, his strongest soldiers, to make this happen. This is a culture of death. And this supposedly great king just wasted some of his best guys so that he could kill his enemies even quicker. And we, we don't know exactly what the furnace would have looked like, but the text tells us it was something that they fell into. Think of like just a fiery grave or tomb. And even as they plummeted down to what would surely be their death, they continued to rest in the preservation of God to sustain them to the end. And again, we wonder when we see these kind of things, like how we would respond. 
how, how would I respond to this kind of thing? It's important to know that God gives us the grace we need when we need it, right? We don't need to worry today about how we're going to respond to something tomorrow. And we especially don't trust in our own abilities to remain strong and faithful because we don't have them. Because this story is not ultimately a story about these, the, the, the big faith of these great men. But instead, it is about a great God who gives faith to us, and he helps us remain faithful. God is the hero of this story. And how does God do this? How does God sustain them? He, he doesn't do this far removed from suffering, far removed from pain. He enters into it with us. These men experienced the preservation of God. Now they were about to experience the presence of God. Our king preserves his people, but our king is also present with his people. So as Nebuchadnezzar looked on to see what would have surely been a gruesome spectacle to see, he noticed something was a bit off. First, there were four men in there, not three. Second, they were untied, and they were just walking around. Like Understandably, he was kind of freaked out. He expected that he was going to be entertained by their death, and now he was fearful of their life. And he said that the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Now, with that, there's, a, there's some debate over the identity of this, of this person. Was it some kind of pre-incarnate Jesus? Was it an angel? Was it something else? One thing we can know with certainty is that Jesus' uh, incarnation at his conception and his birth was a unique event. Like that was the moment when Jesus took on human flesh. Also, that phrase, son of the gods, was likely his way of describing some divine man-like person. He was a son. He was a man, but he was like one of the gods. But whatever, wherever you fall on the specific identity of this person, we can know one thing for sure. It is a clear and an undeniable picture of Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. We read this passage in our call to worship today, Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. God says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, your mind. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So brothers and sisters, we serve a Savior. We serve a King who is with us, who suffers with us. We serve a king who came down to us. We serve a king who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We serve a king who can relate to our pain. We serve a king who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We serve a king who is the suffering servant. So the fact is, there isn't a sorrow, there isn't a pain that the Lord Jesus doesn't understand in some way. So whether you're suffering for righteousness' sake, like these brothers, or whether you're just experiencing just the pain and toil that comes from living in a broken world, you can know that the Lord Jesus is gentle and lowly. He stoops down. He gladly, willingly, humbly stoops down to be with us. And that means in your suffering, you're never alone. You're never alone. We're often tempted to think when we're going through something hard that nobody else understands. Nobody cares. No one knows what to say. No one's able to help. I'm telling you today that Jesus understands. Jesus cares. Jesus knows what to say. 
Jesus is able to help. He's willing to help. And it's important to see that because suffering has a way of blinding us to the presence of Jesus. So one of my prayers this morning is that through this passage, we would have our eyes opened to the one who is with us in our suffering. We even see this with Jesus and his disciples. They're, they're in this storm out in, the, out in the sea, and Jesus walks right out there. He walks right out into their messiness, into their suffering to help. Because he isn't a king who just sends his underlings to do his bidding for him. He's not too busy with more important things to care for you and to comfort you. He came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. And this takes us to an even deeper truth. Because in this fiery furnace, we see a gospel picture that points to Jesus. We see faithfulness leading to punishment. We see one being thrown into a place of death, coming out alive and giving a place of honor and glory and power. And like these brothers and like the Lord Jesus, countless martyrs, countless witnesses have walked this path before us. But again, they didn't do it alone. Jesus was with them in their suffering. And that means he's going to be with us. But in, in the gospel, our king, he doesn't merely suffer with us. He is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. But he also bore our griefs. And carried our worries, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we're healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. To church, it's important that we know that Jesus suffers with us. Jesus can help us. Jesus gives us sympathy and help. He draws near. But we need more than encouragement this morning. We need forgiveness. Because far too often, we fail to fight temptation. We bow down to the idols. We make idols of our own. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we make idols of ourselves. We lift ourselves up to be glorified and honored. We are far more like the Babylonians than we realize. And because of that, we have a problem with the king of heaven. In our natural state, we we are treasonous rebels that deserve the punishment of death. We deserve to be thrown into the fiery furnace of God's wrath. That's the bad news. But I got some good news for you this morning. Jesus stepped into the furnace on our behalf. He was not spared the pain and agony. He fully took the punishment that was due to us that we deserve so that we could escape the judgment of God. And we enter into that salvation the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego entered. We experienced the salvation of God through faith. It was the presence of God in the fire that spared these brothers It is our union with Christ that saves us from the flames of God's wrath as well. So friend, if if you are sitting here this morning, if you're in this room, and you have not wholly leaned on Jesus' name, then today is the day of salvation. Know that God is infinitely better than King Nebuchadnezzar. But he's also infinitely more powerful and holy. 
He will not sweep your sin under the rug. He will not just let it slide. It must be dealt with. And Jesus is your only hope. So this morning, you can see your sin for what it is, turn away from it in repentance, and trust in Jesus for forgiveness, for hope, for healing, for salvation. This morning, we opened up our service with how firm a foundation. One of those verses says, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. So Jesus suffered the ultimate flames of God's wrath so that the trials we endure would not consume us, would not kill us, would not destroy us. So what have we got to endure for the sake of Christ is part of God's plan to refine us, to draw us into deeper fellowship with Jesus. So in your mind, I hope you're getting this picture of the, the contrast between King Jesus and King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Instead of sacrificing others, Jesus sacrifices himself. Instead of lashing out in rage and fury, he overflows with love and forgiveness to his enemies. And when we suffer for Jesus' sake, he promises vindication. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that happened right away, immediately. For, for their sake and for the sake of those watching, they were, they were utterly, they were completely rescued. We started today talking about just the countless martyrs throughout Christian history who did die. I think of Latimer and Ridley who were burned to death. But they too experienced God's vindication. They experienced a heavenly vindication in the presence of Jesus. God was still faithful. And the fact is, whether we recognize these moments or not, every day we face similar decisions about standing up for the kingdom of Christ. Will we bow down to the demands of the world? Will we give in to the desires of our own flesh? Or will we trust in Jesus for strength to remain faithful? Will we daily die to ourselves so that we can experience deeper and fuller fellowship with Jesus? This passage shows us that the strength to remain faithful in the midst of persecution, of temptation, of suffering, this comes from the preservation and the presence of God. So dear Christian, take heart this morning. Your faith may be and feel very small, but your God is very big. He's able to help. He's willing to help. And we can see the proof in his son, Jesus Christ. So let's recommit ourselves this morning to trusting in him and following him today. Pray with me. God, we come to you and we... We admit our neediness. We can easily be intimidated by examples like this. But I pray that you would help us to take heart that the hero of the story is Jesus, for he gives us the strength and the faith we need. So we pray for that strength. We pray for that faith. And I pray for any in the room who have yet to bow the knee to King Jesus. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that you would bring new life into hearts this morning. For your glory, in the name of Jesus, I ask all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.